I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You know, I I think of all the themes in A Strange Loop as loops themselves. You know, sexuality is a loop. AIDS is a loop. Fam, you know, family is a loop. Tyler Perry is a loop. You know, black art. Like, there's so many loops within loops within loops in the show. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Michael R. Jackson, you just heard, winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Drama for his existential musical, A Strange Loop. We talked about our shared love of female singer-songwriters from the 90s and how being a gay man in New York City today is more confusing than ever. More with him later in the show. I miss Broadway. I know I sound like a giant queen and I kind of am a giant <laughs> queen, but I really miss the shows, the electricity in the air before the show, the intermission with the overpriced drinks and the uh, Hollywood actors making art, you know? Broadway fans, it's like trading cards almost, yeah. you know, like you like show each other your playbills. Like, what did you see? I saw this, you know, there is this like Pokemon got to catch them all sort of mentality. <laughs> like I saw so What much. are the big shows that you saw? The best show that I saw was Follies, the Follies revival with Bernadette Peters. Oh, nice. I saw two productions of Glass Menagerie, one with Sally Field. Wow. Which was amazing. I was a luster on the balcony. It was still <laughs> really good. And one with Zach Quinto, the one he did a few oh. years ago, which was really good. I saw Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. And Andrew Garfield. That was yes, mind-blowing. I remember that. I saw the Adams Family musical with Brooke Shields. <laughs> <laughs> Playing, the, she plays Morticia? Yes. <laughs> That's the spectrum of Broadway. You know, you have the Sally Fields and the Brooke Shields. Right. I have to admit, you know, like as a celebrity obsessed person, one of my favorite things about Broadway would be waiting outside the stage door really? to get you. People. Yeah, I used the to wait outside the, the stage door. The thing with our listeners is they think you're the celebrity. I have not. They think you're the person <laughs> exiting <laughs> the door. Uh, but you're really just a fan. I'm the fan girl through and through. So the, these stage doors, are they on the side street, in an alley, on the same street? They're based, They're usually on the same street and the security people set up barricades around the doors because everyone that's waiting outside is a total obsessed psycho <laughs> fan girl so there's this psychotic energy in the air of like 
are they going to come out? Are they not going to come out? People are whispering with each other. People are talking to the security guards. You You meet strangers, you bond. I remember when we were waiting um, for Bernadette Peters after Follies, it was a freezing winter night. And we waited and we waited. It was a long, long wait. And then Bernadette actually finally came out and she was wearing this like big black fur coat. Of course. Everyone just went silent. There was like this hush and she just went around one by one slowly. She didn't speak, but she just signed. She took pictures. I do have a picture with her. And she just went around quietly and signed and took pictures of people. And it was like, everyone was respectful. What was your best Broadway Uh, experience? So what I would do for the last couple of years before COVID is I would go down and then kind of go overboard with shows. And I saw uh, American Utopia, the big rock musical dance piece centered on David Byrne from The Talking Heads. My friend Chris uh, is in it. He's a sort of a ginger gay leprechaun dancer, band like a ringleader, musician, singer, dancer. They're all like multi, uh, multi-talented multi people. In the Who you're going to talk to later on yeah. this episode. Yeah, we have an, a, a separate conversation with Chris. So I meet my friend Chris backstage. Uh, we're just like chatting, waiting, happy to see each other. I have uh, another friend with me. And then Chris is like, do you want to go on the stage? Do you want to see the stage? Because the whole kind of innovative aspect of that show is that all the instruments are wireless. So they're really dancing and the stage is moving. And there's this really amazing choreography by Annie B. Parson, the, uh, the, uh, the American choreographer. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go on the stage. So he takes me to the stage of the Hudson Theater and the room is empty and I'm just like standing watching what it must feel. And when you're in the room, you know, it's so sacred. Yeah, I'm, I feel like in every single Broadway theater that I've sat in, I've had that moment before the show where I'm just taking in the theater itself, like yeah. just the space. These theaters are, I don't know, they all carry some kind of magic. And yeah, to be on that stage and to kind of look into the room, look into the audience and just a. Uh, I took a few pictures and it was just a really special thing because I think there's always when you're a performer, this ambition, this yes. like that's the dream. That is the dream. The dream is the Broadway stage, really. There's no better stage. But, you know, for certain people, it never happens. And I think for other people, it's like that's not what they do Like, because it's a really specific type of production. Right. You have to be either a rock legend or, you know, in a really big musical um, production or just a Disney gay. <laughs> so I don't know if it's, I don't think it's going to ever happen to me, but just to be on that stage that night and just to take it all in from the other perspective. Um, so it was a really, really special evening. All of that brings us to our guest today, who is being called the future of the musical. It's Michael R. Jackson, playwright, composer, lyricist, most well known for his musical A Strange Loop, which is this really meta Inception-esque piece that is about a Black queer writer writing his own original musical about a Black queer writer writing his original musical. And it just goes on and on and on and on. (laughs) And in 2020, during the pandemic, Michael won the Pulitzer Prize for drama for that production, for that show. Um, It is exceptional for two reasons. The first one is it's uh, the first non-Broadway play ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama. That's a huge deal. And the second thing is he's the first black writer of a musical to win that prize. And all of this made 
Michael for us kind of intimidating because he is a true genius and a true original and that can definitely be intimidating but I think we found our way in with Michael through our mutual love of female singer-songwriters of the 90s. One of the things that I really connected to in your work um, is this really deep connection that you have to the female singer-songwriters of the 90s. I also feel raised by a lot of these women in the same way. For me, it was Alanis. I know for you, it's really Liz Fair and Tori Amos, and I'm a huge Tori Amos fan as well. Um, can you talk about the time in your life where you discovered these women and and what did Liz Fair and Tori sort of bring to your life in the moment that you discovered them? Yeah, and I would say Atlantis is definitely in there as well. I have actually a funny story about that. But oh, um please share that first. <laughs> okay, so I want I used to always when I was a teenager, half, like I would do chores around the house, and while I was doing chores, I would put on whatever I was listening to, and I, and I'm someone who likes to sing along with what he's listening to, and so one instance, you know, I used to for me washing the dishes was jewel, pieces of you, foolish games. Do you hate him? Cause he's pieces of you. That spoke to me, you know? Um, But then one day I was home and I was like vacuuming the house and I thought nobody was there. And I was listening, I had my headphones on and I was listening to Unforgiven. Or no, Forgiven. Yeah, from Jagged Little Hill. And I literally at the top of my lungs I'm like, if I jump in this fountain, will I be forgiven? Like just screaming <laughs> in the house. And I didn't notice that my brother and like his best friend had come in and were standing right behind <laughs> me. And I turn around and I noticed them and I was so embarrassed and I like ran downstairs into the basement and I hid behind mm. the furnace. Oh, anyway. but that's, that is amazing. Um, I also, yeah, I always used to sing along to Alanis at the top of my head. I was like eight or nine years old when I got that cassette. And, you know, like, I don't know what my mom thought, like hearing me sing along to some of those lyrics. Um, but yeah, can you talk about your discovery of Tori and Liz and, and where you were at at that moment in your life when when you discovered them? So weirdly, I technically discovered both of them at the same time, technically, because they both had songs that were on the Higher Learning soundtrack that my, and I hadn't seen the movie, but my brother had the soundtrack. And so the first song I encountered from Tori Amos was Butterfly, and Liz there had this B-side called Don't Have Time. And I liked them both well enough, though I think I, at that point, gravitated more toward Butterfly, but but then my cousin had gone to Interlochen for school, but then she got kicked out. And so she came back, and when she came back, she brought all of this, like, you know, what I call white girl music with her. And for whatever reason, she thought that I would be interested in Tori, probably because I was, you know, taking piano lessons. 
And so she gave me, she gave me the CD of Under the Pink first. And one night I went to, was going to, like, I got to bed. I said, I'm going to put on this album and listen to it. And I turn off the lights, get into bed, get under the covers, put on my headphones, put on, um, Under the Pink. And the first thing I hear is... Tears on the sleeve of a man Don't wanna be a boy today And that was like all it really took That was like my gateway in Because I just was like I couldn't believe how like beautiful the music was And just these weird sort of um, cryptic lyrics Were just That plus I was sort of like coming out at the time a little bit Like it just was a perfect storm of a lot of things and then like i get to the second track god sometimes you just don't come through and i was like oh my god (laughs) and so like it just was uh, he just was tapping into these you know things that were just under the surface for me that i hadn't put any words to um in terms of questioning it because i also was writing you know, at that time and trying to really find my voice and, and Tori's music, just the sort of, um, speaking the sort of subconscious unsayable and sort of speaking it in like code language, which was like the language of like the diary or the journal, which was also what I was doing at the time. Like, it just was like the, the right safe space for me as like an angsty teenager to kind of pour, his like himself into it and to try to figure some things out. Were you able uh, to, sh- to share your love of Tori with other people? No, you were really. just living I mean, that alone. So it was, I was kind of living it alone. I mean, like my cousin knew that I was into it and like my parents, I think were just kind of like, what's going on? Cause my dad, <laughs> cause I didn't, I couldn't drive at that point or anything. And so like, I remember I used to make my dad, drive me way out into the suburbs of outside of Detroit where I w- was uh, raised and to buy Tori's piano books because I was, you know, taking piano and everything. Like, and and again, like, I don't, I, I, you know, I should ask him, but I don't, I can only imagine what he thought right. at that time because this is before I had come out or anything. And then Liz there, so like I was sort of, I mean, I have like a lifelong lo- love of Tori to this day, but like, but I consider her sort of like the teenage years, technically. Whereas Liz was like the young adult years for me. Um, I encountered her outside of the Higher Learning soundtrack um, on her self-titled album that everyone hated. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I like had gone into a Tower Records, rest in peace, Tower Records, and I saw that album and I decided to get it. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, this isn't sort of what I've always heard about why this person is significant, but I liked it well enough. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, so I decided to go back and look at some of her older albums to see what people were talking about and why they were so upset about this album. So, you- so I went and got Exile in Guyville. Yeah. And I was, and then it was like, mind blown. I couldn't believe that the same artist had put out these two 
very different kinds of albums. And they they were 10 years apart for sure, but I was like so impressed that like this woman who had like had the capacity to do these two very different things that I both liked in very different ways. And so that took me down like, you know, another, you know, rabbit hole of like my, you know, early 20s, early to mid 20s of, you know, the angst, you know, trying to find myself in a sort of uh, a lonely world. You know, a lot of Liz's sort of brash sexuality and humor really spoke to me through her music and lyrics and just the badass quality. Like, I really, like, she was like a, almost like a little superhero character to me. Uh, like this character in uh, Guyville and then Whip Smart and then White Chocolate Space Egg who just said like the funny thing and the devastating true thing. Um, and so she was very much like my sort of, you know, flashlight through the darkness of my 20s into my early 30s. And so I had like this deep love of these these ladies for just being who they were. Right. And that watching them just be who they were was deeply inspirational to me to try to like be who I was, whatever that meant. And that, of course, was its own ongoing process of discovery. Right. Well, there is a song in A Strange Loop, your brilliant musical that really speaks to a lot of this. It's Inner White Girl, um, which is such a mm-hmm. great song. And you also sort of lay out this list of things that these white women are able to do that you feel that you're not able to do as a queer black man. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that and sort of, I guess, like the sort of contradiction of these women are doing all these amazing things, but I can't do them. But yet there's still this, you know, inspiration that's happening. There's all these societal expectations of what you will will do or be and like the thing of it is is those women felt those culture those societal expectations as well within their own identities and yet they still within their art push against or past the boundaries you know put around them to 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 break out of the 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 confines of that listening to these women this a lot of the music of these women like it's just it forced me to go back to what what were my tastes, what were my contradictions, what are what are my desires, what are my flaws, what are all of it? Like I don't I don't have to it and it's all exists within a black context, but that black context is boundless. And um I think just like listening to a lot of this music over time just kept bringing me back to the idea that I didn't have to be boxed in by anybody's expectations or, and, or that I always was going to be at war with the attempts to box me in to some sort of predetermined, prescribed uh, standards and practices as just because of my identity category. So I'm curious to know how, so clearly you were obsessed with Liz and Tori, you grew up taking piano lessons in Michigan, and then how did musical theater come in? 
when did you decide, when did you hear, what was the first musical that you heard that you were like, oh, this is, I can do this. This is what I want to do. And yeah. So I had been involved with musical theater since, you know, I was a kid. And so I loved musicals and my mom used to take me to see shows that were coming into town. And so it wasn't until grad school that I literally just had decided to, to study it just because I didn't know what else to do with my life. I just, I graduated from undergrad. I had a BFA. I didn't know which way was up or how to really professionally be a, a theater writer or any, anything like that. And so I was like, I just need two more years of school to like just anchor myself and figure things out. And it just turned out that the NYU graduate musical theater writing program was a really great home for me to really sort of begin to blossom as a theater writer. And I just found that lyric writing in particular was like a really great container for a lot of the writing that I've been doing since high school and middle school. And as a result of that, the musical um, impulses had a place suddenly to go because I wasn't in the program as a composer. I was in the program only as a book writer who and an inspiring lyricist. But because I'd had all of this musical, you know, background as a kid, it suddenly once I understood the form of lyric writing, the music had like a home. Right. And I'm assuming on this note, yeah, part of that experience <laughs> and that intaking of all of this musical theater information, you worked as an usher for The Lion King on Broadway for four years. Um, wow. I know that you're sort of famously not a fan of The Lion King. What was being an usher like is there a moment that sticks out to you because that's the show that all the tourists go to right yeah yeah yeah. i think like it's not totally accurate to say that i'm not a fan of the lion king that's not the full that's not really the thing of it like it's just that it doesn't it's just it's a big piece of like commercial theater that's primarily for kids. I mean, there. so it, it is what it is. And I think I just didn't like being in this big commercial machine, which is what Disney is. Right. Um, so what I didn't like about it was more the job of like having to right. here's your seat. Don't take pictures. <laughs> so, hey, you know. Well, what is it like here, to be in the elevator, yeah. you know. But what is it like to be an usher? Because I feel like every time that I would go to see a Broadway show, like the ushers were almost characters themselves. Yeah, well, because that's literally when you sign your employment contract, you are called in your your handbook, you're called a cast member. Wow. (laughs) And it's so interesting that A Strange Loop opens with the protagonist whose name is Usher and is an Usher and the song is Intermission Song and it's, you know, it's taking place in the theater. Um, Can you take us back to the beginnings of A Strange Loop? Because you've spoken about, you know, these moments in your life where you were sort of uncertain. And, you know, even in that opening song in A Strange Loop, it's all about this idea of like, today I'm going to change my life. Today I'm going to, you know take on something new. Where were you at in your life when you started creating A Strange Loop? 
Well, I technically started developing it way earlier. This The thing about A Strange Loop is that it lives in, like, many different bands of time. Um, so, like, I began writing this monologue that was the sort of soup of what A Strange Loop would be right after I graduated from undergrad in 2002, And it was, at that point, simply just a sort of thinly veiled personal monologue about being afraid of being out in the real world after school and it was just a young black gay man walking around New York wondering why life was so terrible and then when I went to grad school and then began writing songs the first song that I wrote music and lyrics to was memory songs which is in a strange loop though at Mm -hmm. the time that I wrote it it was just a standalone song that was just for me. And so then I started writing other songs and they tended to be personal and I started trying to put them into the monologue and then the monologue started to change into this sort of one-man show that I performed one night. And so all of that was happening while I was ushering and and I think I started to, to circle down on this idea of the usher and I think the usher part of it really started to click in one night when I was on the mezzanine level of the New Amsterdam. And we had just let the guests in to start seating them. And this older lady was at the bottom of the stairs of the mezzanine level. And she yelled up, Usher, Usher! (laughs) Like she was hailing a taxi because she needed something. And that's in the the musical. That's in the show. Right. And I remember clocking that and being like, that's something. Yeah. And then that sort of began this mo- this musical motif, the origin of that. And and then, you know, and it just, again, it was a very slow process of, of discovery with that piece. Or, or Strange Loop is probably, I'll never write anything more organically than that. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am a Disney usher. I'm barely scraping by. My discontentment comes in many shapes and sizes. When I wake up each morning, I tell myself to try. I tell myself that I will make no compromises. 
you write music? I discovered a strange loop because I was following um, Larry Owens at the time who played Usher in the off-Broadway production. Um, you're both black, fat, queer, and the show is really about a black, fat, queer composer who writes a musical about being black, fat, and queer, and then there's a sort of inception moment. And you've also said in interviews that it, it was important for you to be more self-referential than autobiographical, and I wanted to, like know why was this distinction was so important in the creation of the musical and how that impacted how uh, audiences received a, a strange loop down the line for me the distinction is important because autobiography connotes a kind of linear and one-to-one ratio of reality to to what's on stage and that's not what a strange loop is um there are certainly experiences that I have experienced in life that are part of the creation of a strange loop, but it is very much a made piece. There's fact and fiction, you know, mixed together. The piece itself is about perception. So it's about a young man's perception of his life. And that perception is reality until it isn't, because that perception is also one of that comes from a place of kind of self-hatred. And so because he's moving from a place of self-hatred to self-acceptance, his perception changes. So then I think that calls into question a lot of what you've seen. But And yet some things did happen, but like it was just about how he perceived the, these events and how he felt inside of them. So for me, that's like what kind of complicates this notion of autobiography. Because you read an autobiography or you see an autobiography and you just assume... Oh, that happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. And what's happening in a strange loop is more, is, is gnarlier than that. I love how you describe the reality of being gay, a gay man in New York. You write songs about, uh, you know, online dating, but also hooking up, anonymous sex, even barebacking and prep. It's in the musical. Um, I, I'd like to know why you, how does... Usher and you, or maybe that's different, as you said, relate to that gay world today um, and sort of the sort of complexities of navigating, navigating that, especially in New York City. Yeah, I mean, is it cool to be gay man anymore? Is it <laughs> it feels totally mainstream? Yeah. And so. I don't know, like, I don't, like, I'm almost like, I'm almost, I've been joking with friends, I'm like, do people still have sex anymore? I mean, is it, is it out? Is gay sex out? I mean, I know it, the answer to that is no, but, like, it feels like there's nothing transgressive about being a gay man, and so I don't know what to make of that. Was that transgressive? Or maybe, that, or maybe that's the goal. Maybe that's, like, the point, you know, that everything becomes just part of the mainstream and you live like a boring life like I, that might just but maybe I need to go back into therapy to like unpack that it's something I'm have been thinking a lot about and I actually want to write about it in my I'm working on a, a TV pilot that I think wants to explore some of that specifically but talking about that idea that being a gay man is not transgressive anymore was the transgressiveness that you felt maybe was inherent to that identity important to you and you feel like that's been a loss? I don't know that I consciously thought that at the time. I just think that that was the reality, the cultural truth, 
of the of the time, you know, and things just have changed. And so it's just, but I, I now just have, we now have more language for a lot of these shifts and for people's desires and for, there's, I mean, just so much has changed in the world. And so I just find myself within that in the same sort of ambivalence or in confusion that I felt when I was like in my early 20s. That's so interesting. And I think also for, you just mentioned you're, you're, you're 40 and I think I'm, I'm 36 and I, I still feel that little gap where you grew up and probably um, became aware of gays and, and homosexuality really sort of in the thick of the AIDS crisis. For me, it was just a no, it little... Was, it was, no, it was actually beyond that, past that. Like I really came of age in like... For me, it's like right when, like, antiretrovirals, right, were appearing. Okay, and people were starting to to survive HIV/AIDS, and culture was slowly sort of yeah, that's opening up. But though, to be clear, to white queer people, so I got to New York in 1999 where there was like, oh my God, you're gay in New York. And yet, not really, not for me, because where would I have actually gone? Everything was like very white male centric, but there still was enough fear of HIV AIDS at the time, you know, that like you didn't, what do you do? I mean, it was just so many layers of hell to me <laughs> of like to, to navigate and to figure out how to 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 be confident and to and, and not feel ashamed and not be afraid or or whatever you know and i think that's a history that maybe a, a few people want to want to forget and in in a strange loop so that's kind of there we feel that we also feel the the cultural presence of AIDS, especially in a black family, in a religious family, um, you're, the, 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 the characters of Usher's parents are present. They call him. Sometimes they, they ask him to come back. And they also ask him if he's ever going to write a gospel musical in the style of Tyler Perry. So I'm, I am making that sort of transition between AIDS and Tyler Perry <laughs> because I feel these are the two kind of... Uh, extreme tensions that Usher is kind of is feeling in his identity is like on one side is like being gay and like that world. And then on the other side, there's like his family and religion. Um, why is Tyler Perry such a presence in the show? And why do you, cause you're, it's really funny. The, the songs about uh, the cultural impact of, of, of Tyler Perry on black America, are really funny, but why did you feel that like you had to go, that far into having his presence, like be actively like that's him, that's his name in the show. Um, well, it, it came that came, you know, about an, a couple different for, for a couple different reasons. Um, one was that you know, Tyler Perry is this figure who looms over so much black artistic culture and entertainment in the world. And he, you know, he, his work, like, is both, like, at this point, like, super mainstream, and yet within cultural elite circles, he's, like, looked down upon. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, as a, you know, a Black artist trying to sort of assert himself in his artistic work like 
to be a popular black artist, you have to do this. And I just think the tension of that for me and my work was just sort of like, I'm just trying to, to, to be truthful mm-hmm. and honest in what I'm presenting. And, and there's all these opposing forces that want to stop me from doing that. Like putting me in this box, like, you know, the inner white girl is also in the midst of that because it's like, there's this desire to burst out and there's these opposing forces that even oppose each other that like, then there's this third thing, you know? And I just was like wanting to respond to it. And it was, since I already had this sort of thing on the show with Tyler Perry about, you know, his mother wanting him to write it more gospel type plays because that's the kind of stuff she likes. And his agent being like, you'll make more money if you do this thing that you don't really want to do. So initially it was all just going to be kind of just satirical kind of take on mm-hmm. that those themes. But what ended up happening was that um, a very dear friend of mine um, passed away from right. AIDS-related complications. And he was somebody who was very important to me and who had actually inspired the writing of the song Memory Song and who was supposed to work on the production of A Strange Loop. Like, it was so many things, plus a lot of the stuff that was in the, like, that Tyler Perry movie, like, resonated with what had actually happened in his life and death. Mm. And so it just all felt like it was, it was almost like it conjured itself into being, and I couldn't get away from it. I didn't like I didn't plan any of it that way, but it, all those elements were because it, you know, I I think of all the themes in a strange loop as loops themselves, you know, sexuality is a loop, AIDS is a loop, fam, you know, family is a loop, Tyler Perry mm-hmm. is a loop, you know, black art, like there's so many loops within loops within loops in the show, and that just ended up being like the Tyler Perry piece just ended up being an important one to sort of touch upon just to try to make people see what Usher sees that these contradictions and these sort of these pain points of of his experience and his selfhood that had many layers within it yeah wow I mean I've also heard you speak so much about how difficult it was to get a strange loop even produced and I'm wondering if you could talk about what it's like to be an artist in this moment with this sort of, you know, desire for a reckoning, but also to keep art interesting and not have characters or artists that feel like they need to be morally perfect. Oh boy. I know that's um, a big question. No, no, no. It, it, it is. It's just, I have so many, I have so many feelings about it. We could probably do like 10 hours. <laughs> we talked about that, but like, I guess what I can can say is that people talk so much about like structural change and this that, and the other, and I'm like, but if you structurally change something, then it changes to something else. But I don't hear people really saying what the something else is, and so it just makes me call into question what it means to reckon. 
like, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's, I can't, people are like, change, 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 change. To what? And how will you know when you get there? And once you get there, there you have another system. And then there will be people who will go, change, 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 change. This is how revolutions work. They don't, they're not static. And so then I start asking myself questions like, well, what are people prepared to do to to defend the change and the revolution that they're calling for? And I'm not saying this from like, I don't do the revolution, though certainly there are aspects of these things that are uncomfortable to me, but you know, who cares? But like, but I still am like, what's the whole vision? And I think that's the part that I feel confused about. And I think that that's actually part of it too, is like of all of these conversations is, is that there's so, in my view, like there's so little self-reflection. There's only sort of like group um, thinking, thinking, mm-hmm. or it's, that's what it feels like to me sometimes, which makes me feel anxiety. And I'm just like, I just wish that some of these conversations came from a, had a little bit more self-reflection. Absolutely. And I, I, and I feel that you're, you're so, I feel independent in that, in that way. Like you really forge your, your own way kind of, I guess, to like close it off. Like what is your, you say that other people don't have a vision, but do you have a vision of what it could be and what it should be? I mean, this is the thing that's like hard about it is like, and this is why I say like I've started to say less and less about it is because I don't have a prescription for everyone. Right. And I'm not, and I can't even say that my path is one that I'm not saying everyone should be like me, not at all, because my, my, my path was extremely unique. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and I couldn't yeah. have planned it. I, it's just that I, I always tell students when I'm talking to them that I at a certain point decided that I love art more than I hate capitalism. But mm. for some other people, they may hate capitalism more than they love art. Like, and I'm not judging that per se, but I, just, but I think you have to be clear on what you're doing. And so like these changes that are coming, I like don't know what to say about them because time will tell. If it's sustainable, if it if people feel like more supported or more represented or whatever, but like you're all everybody's coming at it from such a different lens and different tactics and different desires um, that you know I I I feel like it just remains to be seen what will happen and I don't I don't want to stand in anyone's way. But I also don't want people to stand in my way. So you have, like anything else, you know, people with different wants, characters, want different things. There will be conflict. But conflict is not abuse, as Sarah Shulman says. You know, like, whatever. Like, that's why I'm like, I don't, I can't, I'm not somebody, there's so many other people who want to prescribe this or that solution and mm. I have just found that I'm not that good at it and all I can really focus on is like my art and hope that the thing that I'm making is what can be the vehicle for audiences and other people to be inspired by and to make their up their own minds about what they think should happen in the world going forward 
I'm not, I'm like a much better artist than I am a politician or HR director. I just don't, I just don't have, I'm not an activist in that way. Like I'm an artist, like that's my gig. That's what I understand how to do well. Great. Thank you so much for this conversation. And again, for taking the time. We're both such big fans and so excited to see everything that comes next. And we wish you the best of everything. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Michael R. Jackson. You can listen to the original cast recording of A Strange Loop on all streaming platforms. And there is a new production of A Strange Loop happening at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. from November 22nd to January 2nd. And if you're like me, I'm like this close to booking a trip to D.C. to see the show before it's bound to be on Broadway somewhere in the future. But I just can't live with with the uncertainty. One way I found to get my Broadway fix before I'm able to physically go back was to call my good friend Chris Giarmo, um, who is a dancer and singer in American Utopia. They're back on Broadway. He's back in production. Uh, and I really wanted to know how, how it feels to be doing this again and also to attend the Tonys because he made quite the impact on the red carpet. Broadway is back, and I wanted to talk to you because you're in the sort of thick of it, in the middle of it, um, but you're not like a Broadway person, uh, <laughs> I believe. Even though you're a dancer and singer, you're kind of, all, we're always kind of around Broadway. Um, what is your relationship to Broadway? Uh, I think these days I'm uh, saying that I'm, uh, I represent the future of Broadway. Um <laughs> I think there's this thing that's happening where like a lot of um, kind of downtown productions are being either brought to Broadway or kind of more experimental uh, work is being brought, uh, is being, you know, turned into these larger commercial productions. Um, and I, I'm kind of just thrilled to be a part of that. At the same time, I'm also really trying to make sure that all of the kind of ethos of that world is also brought to Broadway. I, I want to dive into your connection to uh, American Utopia. So, for, But for people who have no idea what American Utopia is, it's easier to even start with what it's not. You know, like it's not a musical, it's not a play, it's not a rock show, but it is kind of a rock show, kind of a musical, not really a play. So how do you pitch it? Yeah, uh, I, I tell people that it's a dance piece disguised as a rock concert um, because uh, the choreographer, Annie B. Parson, is someone that I've worked with for almost two decades now. And I have, uh, consider uh, this show to just be like another big dance theater show, which is the name of her company. Uh, it really feels exactly the same as any other show that I've done, doing very similar kind of movement style, uh, dancing barefoot. Um, and the entire piece is, is very tightly choreographed. Uh, it's 12 musicians, including David, all untethered. Everyone is completely wireless. Uh, everyone kind of wears their instruments, move around the stage uh, as, they, as they wish. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, is, it really feels like a dance piece, but with the energy of a rock show. And then David, 
for the uh, the Broadway version has kind of written a lot of text that he was able to insert between songs to create like a very kind of loose narrative um, and a kind of message, a kind of hopeful utopian message, sort of. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. Yeah, for, for Chris in this show, it it was really like a choice initially for me to just uh, not be considered straight. Uh, Talking Heads, Dave Byrne have a, a fairly, uh, I would say, straight fan base. Uh, and so I really wanted to make sure that nobody would mistake me for just a, a straight dude. Honestly, it was like a very selfish thing. Uh, and then as I started performing more and I started getting messages from fans, uh, especially queer fans that were just like, it's so incredible to see you represent queerness on stage, like next to one of my music idols. Um, so then it started, I, I started to realize that it's really more about representation and just making, uh, making sure that people can see themselves in this position and think, oh yeah, I can, I can do that. So you sing in the show and you obviously dance in the show, but your training I believe was first da in dance. So yeah. what was your, and how did you end up, you know, in American Utopia pre-Broadway? Cause the show was, has been touring around the world way, like for, I believe years before it ended up on yeah. Broadway. Yeah, we started in 2018 uh, touring. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Jersey, and I went to NYU for experimental theater. So even like oh, going to college, me. yeah, no, I was like, I'm, I'm doing, I'm gonna be doing weird shit for the rest of my life. Like at an early age, I decided that. Um, and I, yeah, I really never thought there would be a place for that kind of work in commercial theater. Um, I started working with Annie B's company right out of college, so I was really into dance theater. I mean, I started working with David when Annie B started working with him in 2009. And she started working with him, and I assisted her. I was the assistant choreographer for, for that tour. And then when this gig rolled around, I had heard that he was looking for backing vocalists that could dance. And I just wrote to him and said, hey, I'm available. And he said, would you also be dance captain? And I said, sure. And that was it. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and so the show was really created in the Trump era. There's no way around it. Like there's this sort of idea of this utopia of what America could be. Um, uh, what does, what do you, what does, and I mean, not only David, but collectively the company, what do you mean by American utopia? And especially initially, not necessarily today, but initially, what did you mean by it? I think initially, uh, David was really careful about being prescriptive. Um, and I think he was, which I was really interested too, in, of instead of uh, telling people what utopia could be, instead kind of making audiences consider what they think utopia should be. Um, so I feel like it's always been about throwing out these ideas of possibility uh, for the future instead of just... Uh, you know, telling folks what to do. For instance, that he talks about voting a lot, but he never endorses anyone. It's basically just like, here are the systems that exist. Let's participate in them. Let's use the power that we have uh, to at least share your voice and be engaged. Um, yeah, he's, you know, 
open to all the Republicans going on <laughs> seeing shows on Broadway. <laughs> you know, I mean, folks have at, we do a song in our show. It's the only cover song. It's a it's by Janelle Monae. It's called Hell You Tom Bout, and it's a list, basically a recitation of uh, black people that have been murdered by police or white supremacists. And we did it on the road to every city. We would change the names depending on where we were. Unfortunately, you can do that in America. Um, you could find a local victim of uh, police brutality. Uh, and we, we do that in the show on Broadway, uh, too. And a lot of people, especially now, coming back, people are really curious of how it's received. Oh, are people, more people saying names? Are people more engaged? Uh, and yeah, people are. Um, but uh, we still do have the handful of people that storm out of the theater, um, that get really upset about it, or feel, or we see them just kind of shut down in the audience, just being really confused about what, why this is part of this wonderful, fun rock show. Why are we getting so serious and political all of a sudden? Um, and my response to that is like, it's literally the most minimal ask of an audience to just say a name, say Trayvon Martin's name, say George Floyd's name. I mean, I think it's also like, you know, the show, as you said, created in 2018, then went uh, on Broadway and it was playing up until March 2020. Um, we all, you know, 2020 happened. You came back to Broadway this this fall. Um, the, you know, it's it's almost like everything has changed and nothing has changed in the last like 18 oh, yeah. months. So how was it after all this time, like meeting again and being like here we are again on that stage that same stage the last time you performed on that stage trump was president we had no idea what would happen after november it was in you know right before covid so right before Mar or like in march early march 2020 so take us back to like starting this thing again with this, these people i mean it's so comforting to come back to it. Like I say, they're not my friends. They're really my family. Like we're not, we're related. Like that's the way we uh, kind of deal with each other. And I live in New Orleans. And so I spent uh, most of 2020 and, the big, and, and you know, most 2021 in, in New Orleans. So I was really isolated from them and from the kind of New York art scene and just New York in general. Um, and honestly, yeah, coming back to New York, it, I'm telling you, it felt exactly the same as when I left, like just in terms of oh, wow. it, because I, I wasn't here for the entire pandemic. I didn't experience all of the kind of shutdowns and, uh, you know, different uh, uh, the, the, mar the massive marches that happened here and all of those kinds of things. And I heard that a lot of that happened, but then to come back and, you know, honestly see uh, what's going on here, it's, uh, yeah, seems the same. <laughs> New Orleans is one of those cities like Montreal that's it's your it's a full identity. It's like you fully immerse oh, yeah. you you become the city. It's not like, you know, so how did you become like a person of New Orleans? Yeah, I mean honestly, I think it was doing drag there really. Like huh. I I we when we moved there, I really had uh, kind of decided, all right, I'm never going to work again. I'm leaving, I'm a performing professional, I'm leaving New York City, we're done with that. Like, I'm just going to go, I'll do my YouTube videos or something, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, and then I, I started getting uh, more drag gigs there, and I, start, I did a regular hosting gig uh, in the French Quarter, uh, which is, you know, like the main kind of downtown 
party area, very, very touristy. Um, and so that was maybe, I would say that was maybe one of, not only like the thing that bonded me to the city, but also maybe was one of the most informative uh, performance experience or like, uh, I don't know, like, like gigs of my life just to, to be able, I mean, if you're hosting any kind of thing at a bar, you're, uh, you're, you're running a room full of a very kind of a, a wily group of people. Um, lots of people, especially in New Orleans. Oh yeah. People from all over the world come to that place to go real crazy and get, get real drunk and have a good time. And, uh, so that really taught me how to just talk to all kinds of different people um, and just really kind of like be in charge and like handle any situation. Uh, and honestly, that was like, and, and then you like learn, you bond with other people in the city. That New Orleans is a really kind of specific industry of tourism where you have performing professionals in like drag, burlesque, music, where in any other city, there's no way you would be able to make a living ju just doing that. But because of the kind of tourism that comes into New Orleans, people are looking for weird shit. And so if you've got it, you could, you could really make a killing with it. And so that, finding that community in New Orleans was really important for me. And I, it, like, I have like an art community in New York, and I have this other like it's like a drag burlesque community, but I, I consider it, they feel like the experimental theater scene in New York in the seventies. Like it really feel like it's what I learned about in school. Like I'm like, that's, that's happening there. It's pretty amazing. I love that. And I think New Yorkers are not always open to hearing that. I want to close with the Tonys, that whole experience, um, walking the red carpet. Let's start with the red carpet. <laughs> you are wearing this gorgeous mini dress. Uh, describe the look. We'll post the look on the, uh, on the Instagram, on the show's Instagram. But describe the look that you're wearing on the red carpet at the Tonys in, in September. Thank you. Yeah, the look is a, it's a Versace off the rack, secondhand, uh, knit, mint, long sleeve mini dress in navy blue. Uh, and I'm wearing some uh, bedazzled purple and blue stiletto heels with it. I borrowed them from Kimberly. Uh, and I've got just a simple smoky eye and some kind of slick back hair and a a, a red lip and, and these beautiful uh, costume jewelry earrings that I, I always get my, my costume jewelry from uh, this place called Eye Candy in New York City. It's a really great vintage jewelry shop. Um, and uh, yeah, it made some waves. Uh, there was this Time Style uh, article written about menswear in, uh, at the Tonys and it kind of was, uh, I kind of won it. Like I was, <laughs> it talks about like, it's hard to top uh, the confidence the assurance of a, a well-dressed man in a tuxedo, unless of course you're Cristiano, who dragged not only the hoary gender binary, but men's fashion and like, it was this like incredible blurb about yeah. me. Yeah. And I, and I also loved how, I guess they checked my pronouns or something, but yeah, I'm, I'm a cis man. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm clearly uh, non gender non-conforming. Uh, I'm happy to identify as that. Uh, but I also am, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a man and I, yes, I wore heels and a dress and it was fine. It, uh, frankly, I wore it because I, I'm a, I know how good I can look and that's how I look. <laughs> I got great legs. 
you know, you like no tuxedos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's really, it was, I didn't mean for it to be such a statement, but apparently it really, uh, it, uh, it was exciting for a lot of people. I'm sure Harry Styles will uh, copy this look next year. Let me tell you. Oh, man. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Chris Jarmo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Thomas. Take care. So good to see you. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with? My obsession this week is um, a British television show. Um, It's called Portrait Artist of the Year. And it is as boring as it sounds. And that is why I love it. Over the next eight weeks, some of the most talented artists from Britain and Ireland are coming to showcase their talents. I've been just constantly just painting in my head. Even last night, I couldn't even sleep. I I think I was just dreaming painting. Portrait Artist of the Year. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. There's a few seasons. Basically, there's this um, TV network in the UK, Sky. And every year, Sky has this big portrait competition where artists from all over the UK submit self-portraits and they're selected from that. And then they're invited to come and do these live portrait sittings. And they get all kinds of like British celebrities and actors and artists to sit for the portraits. One of them was Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen sat there for four hours while all these portrait artists drew him. And that's what the whole show is. You're just watching these people draw. But how do you judge if it's also different? There are judges? Yeah, there are three judges who are like so pretentious. One of them is an established artist. One of them is like a gallery a owner. Whatever, and yeah. the other is like an art historian. Oh, wow. No like reality TV trashy no, British person. No, oh. only qualified people on this show, which is well, why I love that's it. That's the first for that kind of competition. Yeah, no. So it's like it's being sk- judged at a very high level. I just watch it more as like meditation. It's so relaxing. Is there a... Uh, sort of David Attenborough voiceover and it's like the artist is uh, there is a little bit of there is a voiceover it's a British woman um, who yes speaks in a very sort of like prim and proper way Uh, I just love it wow yeah what are you obsessed with okay do you remember the singer Agnes of course release me oh my god let's play a clip from release (laughs) me Agnes, um, famous Swedish pop star, really, she is a pop star in the, in, in, in Europe and in, in Sweden, um, was kind of always in the shadow of Robin, yes. sort of the main kind of Swedish pop export of the 21st century. Agnes is back, baby, with a <laughs> new image, new sound. And it's been a long time. Album. It's been a pretty long time um, that she's been on my radar. And the the sort of like... Alt pop queers are loving it. The album is called Magic Still Exists. So Magic Still Exists is her first album in nine years. And it's been like a slow rollout of songs in the last like year, year and a half. Um, But now the album is out and people are freaking out. Like online, people are really giving a lot of love to this record. It's really unexpected. We did not expect a new 
album for Magnus, and here we are, and it's amazing. Um, so it's a disco album. So the the I mean, disco we know has been back, but she is tapping into the real liberation of disco, uh, mostly in in kind of singing about being liberated for from gender. Uh, there's a song uh, that's really cathartic that's called The Soul Has No Gender, and she makes kind of the audience repeats that, or there's a sample. The soul, the soul has no, has no gender. No gender, no. The soul the soul. the soul has no gender. No gender. The sound, obviously, it works. You know, you really want to dance to it, but it has this, like, kind of really sophisticated Rogine Murphy beyond Jesse Ware. Like, Jesse Ware sounds a little bit basic compares. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I listened to the Agnes album and I do agree. It's brilliant. I, and I think that there's a real depth, mm-hmm. you know, like, she's really she's really using dance music and disco to say something like you said, like to make comments on the idea of gender and, and liberation. And I think that we tend to think of dance music as kind of throwaway, but this album yeah. and is part of this tradition of great dance albums that actually say something. And I was really feeling, you know, some Miley, some ABBA, obviously some Robin. Uh, it's a great, great, great comeback. But the song Magic Still Exists, which is the closer on the album, is really one of my songs of the year. Um, there's this like it's it's a ballad in the sort of great ABBA ballads tradition. Um, very strong, very deep. Uh, and I just want our listeners to take a listen and then go stream the album. And now it's time for the credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. SK Robert is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Fi Studio. We're recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Of course, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram page at Chosen Family Show. Leave us a five-star rating, share with a friend. Do your part. <laughs> And thanks to all the people who have been sharing. Yes, we thank see you. you. Yes, and we love you. And we love you. And thanks for the, the great reviews, especially to someone who called me Matt. In the, <laughs> yes, in the they're review. a big fan of you, Matt. <laughs> you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And on this note, we never can say goodbye. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.